Psychology in Seattle. So, Rebecca, I wanted to have you on the podcast to talk about a number of things. So let's get into it. What do you say? Yeah, what you told me we're talking about, I don't really want to talk about it, but I guess I'll talk about it. <laughs> this is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. Who are you, Rebecca? Uh, I'm Rebecca Bloom. I'm a therapist, podcaster, presenter, author, Instagrammer, living in Seattle, living in South Seattle. What's your Instagram? R text, letter R, T is in Tom, E is an excellent X and then another T. Mostly photographs of my dog. Well, we have a lot of animal lovers out there, so they'd love to see that. So this first email is from anonymous patron from Turkey. She writes Awesome. I appreciated I appreciated your episodes on self harm since I am a person who suffers from it. Mm-hmm. I hate my body. I hate my body and I'm ashamed of it. Mm-hmm. I have some abnor I have some abnormalities about my body. Mm-hmm. I have some cutting scars that are embarrassing. Mm-hmm. Also, I have, I have some kind of shape abnormality in my genital area. Mm. My mother shamed me a lot when I was younger about my body. I am a 20-year-old Muslim girl. Mm-hmm. I decided to wear a hijab when I was 12 to hide my body from others and my mother. It was not my family's wish for me to wear one. I decided it myself. I have been depressed I have feelings about suicide and I want to be invisible. But lately I've been trying to make my life better. For example, quitting smoking, overcoming anxiety and overcoming self-harm. I am trying to love myself and my body regardless of its differences. I recently learned that the things on my body are not abnormal and that there are lots of people who have, who have the same things. Also, I have tried to accept my scars as a part of myself and a symbol of my past suffering and pain. Mm -hmm. However, even though I feel ready for this, it is not easy. I still feel the need to hide my body. I've been telling myself that everyone makes mistakes and that your scars don't show that you are weak and sick, but they show you are strong enough to cope with lots of problems. But I still experience lots of anxiety when I'm outside. Do you have any suggestions about my problem? Because I really don't know how to cope with it all. Rebecca, mm-hmm. what do you- well, so I was, I was in Turkey last year. Um, and so I know that for women, the experience there is very complex. Um, so I think that for those of folks who are in other parts of the world, just know that this person has even greater stressors on them than some of us in other parts of the world. Um, Boy, where to start? I mean, if the first is, you know, we all have scars. Um, cutting scars are more common. And I think it's funny, we were just talking about Instagram. There's a whole thing on Instagram of people who've cut in the past and now have scars showing their scars in Instagram, shutting down those accounts for saying that they're glamorizing their scars, whereas people are saying, I'm just trying to be honest about who I once was and who I am now. Um, so we're all really, really different and all of our bodies look really, really different. Um, on the cover of this week's stranger, the 2019 pride edition is this woman named brick house 
who's a very large African-American woman with um, a lot of uh, skin. She's got a variety of skin pigments, and she's getting to be known as a really well-known burlesque performer. So she's really owning that. Like, this is who I am, and I'm going to be as sexy as I am, and you're going to see it. Um, so I think more than ever, there's room of people finding self-acceptance, but it's a long path. And the trick is to find a community of other people, if you can, who've had your same experience where you can safely talk about it. Um, is there support groups for cutters online? Do you know that? People who cut, Kirk? Absolutely. I mean, whether they're support groups, we would call them definitely forums where people will talk about it in various ways. There are subreddits on Reddit that are glamorizing it. And there are subreddits where it's very therapeutic to be there. Mm-hmm. So um, very normalizing uh, as well. So absolutely. Uh, and I'm guessing that the anonymous uh, patron from Turkey knows about those things. Um, at least I hope that she does. Yeah. The, the things that I'll say are in addition to what you said, which is great is to emphasize the fact that you're not alone. And I, because th- anonymous patron, you were talking about how it, it was liberating to you to learn that other people have similar issues and that your body isn't all that abnormal as you were taught by what seems to be an abusive mother. And with, with self-harm, with cutting, you're definitely not alone. Uh, do you know how many teenagers have engaged oh in what non-suicidal self-injury? What percentage? I, mean, I get calls fairly often from friends who are parents who are trying to get my advice on how to help their kids talk to their friends. So I'm guessing, at least here in the States, it's very common. Yeah. Any guess at the percentage? Uh, that's, I don't know, 20%. Yeah, close. Uh, I mean, various studies say different things, but about one in three, so about 33% okay. of teenagers reporting having done it at least once. So and then it'd be a smaller. reporting. <laughs> right, exactly. So it's probably so, higher. Right. So in a classroom, typical classroom of 30 kids, 10 of them have engaged in some sort of self, non-suicidal self-injury. Um, often the reason is because it's anger that's pointed inward. You have reasons to be angry, but there's no place to point it. And so you point it at yourself. Plus, you've been taught through the abuse that you've been through that you deserve to be punished. Uh, Also, it's a form of addiction for many people because of the endorphins that pump into one's brain in response to the, the cutting. And so it can be like an addiction like any other like um, cocaine or anything like that. It's certainly a habit that is developed that people will have a hard time breaking. And research shows that it has to do with emotional regulation and, and self-criticism from trauma and mistreatment. Essentially, when someone punishes you, you learn that you deserve to be punished. And you have this model of dealing with shame in which you have to punish somebody and since you feel safest punishing yourself, then um, people will engage in cutting for that reason. 
Um, I did a whole episode on non-suicidal self-injury a few years ago, and I, I just want to briefly go over what I uh, do with clients with, with non-suicidal self-injury. Um, the first thing is people need to admit that they have a problem. And it sounds like the anonymous patron is there because certainly there are many people who don't think of it as a problem. They're just like, yeah, I like to do this. And, and so admitting that it's an issue that deserves to be paid attention to is step one. Step two is dedicate yourself to taking action. And this can take a while, you know, cause you could say, yep, yeah, I have an issue, but you know what? I, I, I like doing this. It serves a purpose and I'm not really interested in changing anything. So step two is actually recognizing that there might be other ways of getting your needs met that are healthier. Uh, three is getting therapy. Obviously family therapy could be really great trauma therapy with someone who knows about self-injury. Not every therapist is very knowledgeable. I mean, Rebecca, what do you think about it? I mean, some therapists can get really hysterical about, about cutting. Um, So just to make sure that you're with someone who can calmly talk you through what's happening and isn't increasing the anxiety with their own fears. Um, Because I've seen some therapists that make it worse. Yeah. It's a common response in our culture, given messages that when particularly a young person is doing this sort of thing, it's uh, scary and People are worried you're going to kill yourself. People are worried uh, about blood and I don't know. It's, it's, it just involves a lot of scary things to people. And I've certainly seen bad reactions from therapists and from parents and from teachers. And a big part of my job, actually, I, I guess I didn't really include this in here, is getting every, everyone in the family, the teachers to calm down and just realize that a lot of people are doing this. and it's associated with suicidality, but it's not suicidality. It's actually something that someone is doing to, to cope and to not kill themselves. So um, it's, uh, it's not functional. It's something that we want to address, but it's not something that we have to freak out about. And it's not something that we can stop them from doing right away. It's something we, we have to take a longer term approach. It's sort of like the approach to hoarding disorder. A lot of people are like, well, you just have to, clean out their house. And what that does is it just traumatizes the individual and research shows that after you do that, the hoarding is worse within months. Um, so not only does the hoarding return, but within just a few months, they've, they've completely acquired uh, enough material to surpass their previous hoarding, you know, quantity, if that makes any sense. So it's, it's not a matter of, you know, taking away the instruments. It's not a matter of establishing discipline or something. It's, it's something really uh, more long-term than that. People suffer from non, it, once that behavior is ingrained, it, it's, it takes a long time to kick. It takes years to really kick. I mean, certainly some people can abstain right away, but it's such a. You've got to replace it with, you've got to figure out why you're doing it. And then replace it with healthy behaviors. And any of us who've dealt with behavior change know that that's, you know, there's relapse in there and all kinds of things happen in there. Yeah. Like I'm never going to eat another donut or something, that kind of thing. Um, step four is self-awareness, emotional awareness, getting to know your shame, your loneliness, your anger, your emptiness, and your triggers. 
Five is establishing physical warmth of some kind. These aren't steps per se. They're just like things right. to address. Um, uh, physical warmth with hugging, with, you know, holding hands with animals that is important for attachment security and emotional regulation. And more and um, more people are talking about how addiction is really a sign of isolation. So I think right. what you're talking about here is that, you know, as we try and understand our behaviors to know we feel lonely is a big piece of that. Exactly. Also getting support, uh, having allies. This is a tricky thing because again, because our culture gives a lot of messages around this that are destructive you as a, you might be in a community or a circle that needs to be educated about cutting and it might be you that needs to educate them, uh, at least point them in the direction. Uh, you can't, we can't expect people to be aware of the ins and outs of cutting. And so, uh, so the people around you, like your parents or your friends, you, you know, you have to, be patient with them because it can be very shocking to people. You know, when you tell your sister, for example, you, yeah, I've been cutting for the past two years, it's normal for her to, to be very scared and to be, and to kind of be a little panicked and you just have to sit with her and say, um, it, it's okay. There's nothing to worry about. I'm, I'm, I'm getting better. And I, I just want you to know so that I can get the support I need around this. And I need you to not freak out because that's mm-hmm. going to make it worse. So it, it takes time. And, and what I see a lot of people do is they'll tell someone, the person will freak out and then they'll, they won't tell anyone tell ever again. Never forget. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. you know, I get it. But at the same time, you just have to be realistic about people's normal reactivity. You just have to sit with them for a while. And that can be hard, but that's what I tell people to do. Um, number seven is body work, relaxation biofeedback, self-massage, uh, uh, somatic work, just getting to know your body and getting into tolerating, your body. and under- Tolerating that you have a body. Yeah, exactly. And then it, uh, has, it has feelings that sometimes feel overwhelming, but they're just feelings and you, you can cope with them. I think for a yeah. lot of my clients, their feelings feel so overwhelming. They can't imagine tolerating them for any number of reasons. And so being able to just realize it's just a feeling. It's not the end of the world. You are going to make it through this feeling. Yeah. Easier said than done, but uh, definitely something to shoot for, for, for absolutely sir. Uh, number eight is removing temptations, uh, getting rid of the gear, not being alone are things that you can do to get through the times when you have cravings to do it. Nine is distractions, friends, staying busy, not getting bored is a major thing in any addiction is avoid, avoiding boredom. Ten uh, is to find a substitute, like um, some people will rub ice across their skin instead because it kind of hurts to hold on to ice. Some people will snap rubber bands um, or they'll mark with a red pen where they would usually cut. This is something that you just have to experiment with as an individual to find the right thing that works for you. A lot of things don't work for people, but for some, you know, it can work. Um, number 11 is doing something else, exercise, scream, squeeze a stress ball, rip something, play the drums. Sometimes people will eat something really spicy as a, as a substitute. You can take a cold shower, you can sing. Um, 
you know, sometimes people find success with that. Uh, 12 is having a crisis plan that involves other people. 13 is perhaps doing some addiction work, like even going to AA or something or some 12 step group, uh, learning that language about, uh, one day at a time and working the steps can actually be helpful for some people, not everybody. 14 is write up Rebecca's alley is being creative, make art, write a poem, write a song, uh, instead to channel your emotions. 15, find meaning. You know, what's the meaning of your past mm-hmm. self-injury? And anonymous patron, you are already doing that. You have found meaning that uh, it shows that you are strong in your words and that uh, you're strong enough to cope with a lot of problems that you've dealt with in your life. That's what your scars mean to you. And that's a, that's a evidence of, of what we call post-traumatic growth. And then 16, the last one is relapse prevention. Shame prevention, essentially. It's normal to relapse. It's very common to relapse with cutting. Uh, For example, I have one quote from Reddit here. said, um, I stopped cutting about five years ago, except for today. Hmm. I have depression along with anxiety. My roommate sent me into an emotional breakdown. He told me that nobody liked me and nobody wants to be around me. So I went and did the only thing I know how to do that's right. Um, And then they say, uh, you guys don't have to respond, but it just feels good to get it off my chest. So this is somebody who is feeling the feelings and they're reaching out and they're recognizing what happened and they don't seem to be terribly ashamed about it, which is a good thing. It's normal. You're going to have relapses or at least cravings at the very least. and when we shame ourselves, like, oh, I thought I was over this. What's wrong with me? That's when we descend into dysfunction. So it's, it's just normal to have relapse. So I, I have a, a client um, who we don't work with anymore, but she cut very intensely. And she found herself, she told me this story about finding herself in the emergency room of the local famous trauma hospital here in Seattle. And the nurse was um, sewing the wound back up and just telling her that she doesn't, she will find other ways to cope with her pain. And it was such a touching story <laughs> um, that the nurse was like, hey, you've done this. We're going to take care of it. But there's other things that you can do. Um, and I thought of well, what a lovely reaction. And if we could all, have that when someone picks the wrong or, or uh, a harming coping strategy, you know, instead of the intense shame, it's, Hey, you did this and there's other ways to be. Um, and, you know, I'd like to help you find those other ways. Yeah. Do you remember early in your career being scared by this before you learned? I more actually about remember it? being not scared by it and being one of the only few people who wasn't scared by it. So when I was first coming out, People were just starting to talk about this in the straight world. But in the queer world, self-harm, I think, is so much more common and so much more talked about that I just had a lot more of a basis for it than my straight counterparts. And so I remember being one of the few people that wasn't like just completely freaked out and convinced that the client was going to go home and commit suicide. Um, I think because I understood the self-regulation aspect of it 
Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but I just remember some of my peers, like, just going into, you know, way overreacting and, like, coming up with suicide plans and kind of missing the point. <laughs> that, like, right. um, you know, this person is trying to figure out how to self-regulate and they don't have a lot of skills. And this is what they've picked. Um, and our job is to help them figure out better ways to self-regulate. Yeah, for me, it was a different path to not freaking out in the beginning of my career. And it was because I, I've never felt responsible for my client's behavior, even suicide. Mm-hmm. I've never had a client kill themselves while I was working with them, if I'm remembering right. And uh, I guess I'd remember, if, <laughs> but um, I have, so maybe it would be different if I actually went through something like that, but I've never been, I've just never felt that way. I've always had a pretty uh, secure understanding that I'm here to help and it's your life. And if you decide to do something horrible, then, you know, that's your life to live. And I'm, I'm here to help and whatever you want to work on, I'm here to work on, but it's, I'm not going to freak. If I freak out, I think early on, I was like, if I freak out about everything my clients are capable of doing, I'm not going to sleep at night. Mm -hmm. The other thing is, is given my slight avoidant attachment style, I'm, you know, I'm in, in between avoidant and secure. I just tend to avoid <laughs> things that are that difficult. That sounds bad. I don't want to deal with that. <laughs> it's just like, ah, you know, you're you, I'm me, you know, let's just choose not to bother each other with those things, I suppose. <laughs> um, but anyway, all right, well, let's take a break and we get back. Let's talk about the movies we've seen recently. Oh, I've seen some good movies. <laughs> all right we're back from the break do you have anything you want to plug so you often have some kind of training you want to plug uh so my book is out out on the amazon okay. um really need oh. someone to g- give it a good review so it's called vicarious trauma illustrated and uh i look at uh, so if you know anybody that's got Compassion fatigue, secondary trauma, first degree trauma, uh, burnout. This book would be helpful. It's an illustrated book, 50 uh, Process Painting Watercolors, What on What by me. Some hand calligraphy, which is really hard, <laughs> and about 15 pages of text. And uh, it's on the Amazon and the Book Locker. If you run into me in the streets of Seattle, and probably we'll be carrying one and we'll sell you one on the spot for 20 bucks. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. Uh, you've had success with your books and it's been great to be a part of that with you. Um, I knew you when. Before you, <laughs> you ever- knew me before, I know. And you know, having done them, it's so much work. Yeah, it is so much work to the point where I don't know if I, I have a book on grief I want to finish, but Mm. after the last, I I just really just don't know if it's worth it. It's just so much work. Anyway, um, join us on Facebook and Instagram and join the Facebook fan group, become a patron, obviously. If you want to talk with me, please only use email or contact us through the page on our website. Uh, I'm getting a lot of emails and whatnot, and I can't look at the 10 different venues of communication on Facebook and Patreon. So just email me at contact at psychologyinseattle.com. 
Um, if you want access to our archive, go to our website. That's the best place. Email us if you have trouble with the premium feed as well. So last night I saw Rocket Man, and you finally I wanted, saw it. I wanted to. I wanted to talk with you about it. Uh, what do you think of it? I thought it was the greatest therapy musical of all time. What do you mean by therapy musical? Well, it is a musical where he he takes the songs that we've known our whole lives, especially you and me, we're right smack of that generation. Um, and then, but he's in the often therapy session to the point, I don't want to give away too much, but there's some amazing either gestalt or psychodrama techniques where he literally gives his inner child a hug. Um, so yeah, it's a lot about addiction and intergenerational trauma. And, uh, I think they did an excellent job. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I love, I loved that frame of the, I think it's opening scene. If I'm not mistaken, he, uh, Elton John walks into a group therapy session and he's, uh, he's in one of his crazy outfits, you know, and all the other people are dressed normally, so to speak. And he sits down and, um, throughout the movie, uh, so the movie is him telling his story in group therapy. And as you say, there are moments in the group therapy session where he, for example, hugs his, his inner child and has moments with his parents and other people. And it's, um, I thought it was a wonderful way to tell a story. I mean, it, I've, I don't think I've ever seen, I'm sure it exists, but I, I don't think I've ever seen a story or movie told like, like that through the frame of group therapy. Yeah. And there was also a way in which the songs became the dialogue, um, which was just phenomenal. So, you know, you learn that Bernie is writing the songs, but he knows Alton so well that he crafts these songs that will feel so real and alive to Elton or Reggie, who he is as a kid. And then the family members will sing the songs to each other or a lover will be in singing his song to him. And it just takes it to this completely other level. The friend that I was with was weeping. I probably would have been weeping if I wasn't so incredibly like entranced by what was happening. Um, yeah, I can't wait to see it. I want to desperately see it again because there's a whole level of detail that I feel like I missed in that first viewing. Did you cry at all? I didn't cry at all, which is funny. I cried a number of times. Uh, the one when at the very beginning, when the family starts singing one of his songs, Ugh. they're, they're all in their different rooms, you know, and there's this tremendous distance. And I loved, I get chills thinking about it because it, you know, cause this was written or produced by Elton John himself. So, and it was clear that he had a bone to pick with his parents, mm-hmm. but at this there's this early scene where you get to see the, so to speak, the inner dialogue of these, of the parents and how sad they were on the inside, how lonely they were. They all were. And so it gave this sympathetic logic to why the parents were such jerks to Elton John himself. Right. I cried during that scene. And then of course the, I think, the scene that was designed to make me cry at the end. <laughs> what was, I mean, who doesn't want to hug their inner child like that? I mean, it's so, 
excellent the way, and we've talked about this um, with another film where the guy, uh, we talked about this in Russian Doll, where the guy, instead of yelling at the people that's been jerks in their lives, say, says, you can't give me what I want. I keep returning to you asking for the same thing that you will never give me. I, and I'm sorry. And I'm sorry like, to you. Like, yeah. I, I have, I have, I have fault here, you know? Uh, so, and I understand where you're coming from. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, there's very this, there's this lover that he keeps returning to who is abusive to him financially. And um, there's infidelities and all kinds of things going on. Um, but you can tell he keeps coming back to him over and over. And um, it's very interesting in that scene where he releases himself from his parents. He also releases himself from that abusive partner, um, which is just so touching. And same sex, uh, you know, inner partner violence gets talked about so rarely um, that it was amazing to see it here. Uh, in Seattle, we do have um, the Northwest Network that addresses that issue, but you know, I don't think every city has a group that does. Um, so to see it on the big screen like that was just also revolutionary. That um, gay couples aren't necessarily happy. You know, there's a lot of issues. The same issues that get played out in every couple get played out in gay relationships. Um, and that- when you're isolated from society and your families it can make things worse right when you're right. shunned right who can, are you going to turn to who's going to listen yeah. to you that yeah. being said it was also having seen bohemian rhapsody and heard the critiques that um the sex in bohemian rhapsody was lacking i was shocked to see what a passionate lover uh taron Ed- edgerton is that his name? So la- last scene for me in the Royal Kingsman movies, where he plays a very sexy, straight kind of James Bond character. Um, yeah. Here, playing, playing a very passionate gay man. Uh, like, that is some acting right there. Um, yeah, I'm glad you said that. It's the same. What, you know, his manager, lover, boyfriend, was played by the guy who played Rob Stark in in um, Game of Thrones. Did, did you watch Game oh, of Thrones? Oh, I did. A lot of people in this movie, I was like, I know that person. <laughs> who are they? Yeah, mm. yeah Rob Stark. But I thought the same thing, because I've been following Taron Edgerton's career a little bit. Uh, Kingsman, he's also, he's he's been in a number of things. And I was watching a very convincing passion. You know, I, I immediately went to YouTube to see like, is he bisexual? Cause man, he sold that thing. And he Someone talked about, laid. <laughs> he was yeah, he, he talked about how uh, he's totally straight. And, and he, he basically said, look, love scenes on screen, regardless of gender are always awkward. So it's not like if I was with a woman, it's not going to be awkward. It's always weird. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, he, he said that he, he and the, the other actor had a talk beforehand about, you know, what they were going to do and how they're going to get through it emotionally. And, and he, and he was just saying, look, even with a woman, it's the same. It's, 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 it's on, you're on stage and everyone's looking at you. And, 
it's acting and, and, but yeah, I, I was totally convinced of the, cause there, there's a way that I think actors will, you can sort of see when straight actors are kissing the same gender and they're, they're totally straight, you know, in, in their personal life. You can say like, wow, they were, you know, that was a good acting job, but I feel like Taron Edgerton took it to a whole other level oh, yeah. in this. Yeah. There was a level of passion that was familiar to me having been around gay men in love. And I don't know if I, having watched that scene, I was like, I may have never seen this on the screen before. Like there was just a level of intensity, like, you know, that thought that you didn't know if you were ever going to get this in your life. And um, right. here it is. And I was just blown away. Was, so at the same time, it, it was fairly hyped, you know, bef- before I saw the movie, I heard in the news that this apparently was the first gay sex scene in a major film. And uh, I was, you know, in my head, I had pictured what that scene would look like, but it was a lot tamer than what was in my head. <laughs> I have to say, I mean, it's still, I guess, a movie for the masses. So, um, but anyway, uh, so what do you think about it in comparison to Bohemian Rhapsody? Um, I, I'm a sucker for an epic musical. So it pulled at my heartstrings the way something like um, Hairspray did where you are in full-on magical realism um you know that's my jam right there so and it made sense when i think about who elton is as a performer you know i mean anybody that can wear a donald duck costume on stage like clearly understands the nature of theatrics um but it was also touching to see like that a lot of the moments were not just bombastic but also very small um, and in a way that felt different than Bohemian Rhapsody, where I felt like, even though I love that movie to death and I thought the guy that, um, played, uh, to be named spacing out, um, played the lead movie Freddie in that, uh, Freddie Mercury was also amazing. There was something about this that was really different. And I think it was the intensity and the wattage of what the magical realism took me to, um, and how much more emotional it was. And there was things they didn't even touch on, like the death of Princess Diana and all these other things that I knew were big deals in Elton's life. Um, but it was both very tender and very large at the same time, which is not easy to do. Um, it, it reminded yeah. me of the movie like Water for Chocolate. Have you ever seen that movie? It's a yeah, Mexican- I used to sign it in um in class i signed the book in class um so that same level of magical realism where you are talking about family history and culture and life and it's all kind of dancing around together and it's just kind of amazing yeah i liked both of them i think they're it's inevitable that they're going to be compared pretty closely but to me they're they're two different intents like the the queen movie was intended to be funner and more about the reality of the musical performances. Whereas the uh, rocket man is a musical and it's, there's magical realism in it and there's um, a lot of metaphor. And I, I could, I, 
I mean, I don't know if I, I don't know if you heard anything, but I could absolutely see this being adapted for the stage pretty oh, easily. Yeah. yeah. And, and he wrote Billy Elliot. He wrote the music for Billy Elliot. So he knows how to do that. <laughs> it was really clear. Uh, he was drawing on that for this. Oh, that's interesting. Cause the guy who plays Bernie Toppin was the kid in Billy Elliot. I think. Oh, really? I didn't know that. I think so. If I'm not mistaken. Um, I really loved the, as a songwriter myself, and as someone who has actually written music for other people's lyrics, it's not often I do that, but I have. I loved the interaction between Bernie and Reggie. And the, I, and I, I in my head, I, I always knew that Elton John had someone else writing the lyrics, but this movie really put it into visual for me like oh okay elton really did not write those because the okay. way elton sings, it seems like it's him you know but and it is he he owns it it's not like he's just singing someone else's words he he owns those words but uh i really like that bernie toppin was a major focus because all those words are from him and they're so okay. beautiful and i don't think i'd ever really appreciated how beautiful the words are I mean, obviously, some of the Elton John songs are just phenomenal lyric-wise, but seeing it in this way, I, I just was blown away. And I, in my head, I always thought that Bernie was like this guy who lived in, because I think it was told to me this way, like Bernie Toppin lived in the country and avoided the limelight and would just send Elton John lyrics. And, and meanwhile, Elton John's living this, you know, famous lifestyle. But the story is, at least in the beginning, was that Bernie Toppin was right there with Elton John the whole time, you know, on tour with him and uh, writing with him in his environments. And, and so I liked that story as well, that the lyricist wasn't disconnected from the whole experience, that he was, he was there. Uh, I liked that a lot. Well, um, and also you see in that scene where they're at Mama Katz's house that um, the that Bernie easily finds a lover that night and kind of knows his place can easily fit into the culture um, because he's straight. And then you see Elton just kind of wandering <laughs> like where do I, I'm the star here, but I'm not, you know, and there isn't any real clear place for me. And as a gay person, that was just so familiar for me, like, you know, if I'm straight, I would know where I stood and I would know what clothing to wear and I would know where to go. <laughs> but when you're gay, it's just not that clear. And so I thought the way they did that scene was so interesting. Obviously, Private Dancer is written about um, Tiny Dancer. Excuse me, Private Dancer is a different song. That's um, uh, Richie. <laughs> uh, the, um, you you know, it, as a man looking for a woman, it's just the, the course of action is just kind of clearer. Um, and Elton doesn't have that course. And you just get a sense of like where the drugs show up and why, um, as he tries to, you know, put it all together. And the rates of substance abuse in the queer community are huge. And still things like smoking is huge in the gay community. Um, because, you know, people are just looking for a way to numb and, you know, obviously the extent that he goes to, uh, I love that scene where he said, I just forgot to stop being an asshole. <laughs> it's like, you know, having feelings is hard. 
Um, especially when the sexual feelings you've had come with both desire and guilt and shame all mixed up. Um, especially at that, you know, the time that we're talking about, whereas he was to be out as gay, his career would have been over. Yeah. I thought that was an interesting scene where he goes to the party because we associate the early seventies, late sixties with free love and, and LA in particular, Hollywood with all this partying and, and you think, oh, Alan John is super famous and he goes to this party and you're just like, oh yeah, that's right. He still lives in a straight world. Uh, And just because the straight people are all liberated, so to speak, and having a good time, the gay people are still completely marginalized, probably even within those groups as well. And uh, it's just something that isn't depicted often in, in art and culture. Um, And it wasn't until no suffering from it, you know? Yeah, and the quietness of his awkwardness was just lovely to me. Yeah. Like he's just wandering around. <laughs> like, where do I fit? Where do I go? Who do I talk to to look normal? <laughs> like that for me is, I think most of my life is actually still spent doing that. <laughs> uh, what do you think the moral of the story was? Well, it's, you know, I kind of, it was a little cheesy. Like in the end, I have kids and I'm happy. Um, you didn't win, Dad. Uh, I mean, he's one of those people, like, we're fucking lucky that he's still alive. And he said that. Like, the fact that he didn't die of AIDS or of an overdose or any of that um, is just really a miracle. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I, the way they cut in I'm Still Standing into the kind of ending the movie there, um, I thought was kind of his celebration of, you know, he made it. He's out the other side. And he's been able to stay out the other side, which is, you know, also not the case with a lot of people who go into recovery. Uh, I forgot what I was going to say. I like the movie. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'll say, I guess. Um, oh, the morals that I pulled away from it were that... Um, Success means nothing without attachment. I thought that was mm. a big theme. You know, he was very okay. successful, and but very lonely. And mm-hmm. that without a relationship with somebody that loved him um, for who he was, not for what the, he could provide them. Um, and also grieving and going through therapy, his childhood was uh, the first step towards having the life that he wanted to have. Oh, I know what I was going to say. I've, I've been talking about this movie with other people listening to podcasts about it. And one of the things that I've realized is that Elton John was essentially a seventies phenomenon. And in, and it was really only a few years where he was ginormous. He had something like, you know, half of his hits were within the same couple of years around 1975. And what I've realized is that people younger than us, even just by 10 years, don't really have the resonance with his music the way that people of our generation do. Have you found that? Yeah. I mean, I knew every one of those songs. Um, And the scene with Kiki D for me was like practically, you know, orgasmic. Like, I mean, that was my song growing up and I couldn't stop singing it. And I've since gotten the soundtrack and listened to it about a thousand times. So, yeah, I mean, that was for sure the music of my childhood. 
Um, and I remember in college, we would play it all the time, probably because it was, you know, we're all 18, 19. It's all the music of our childhood. That and um, Rumors <laughs> by Fleetwood Mac. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, these were the songs. My gift is my song and this one is for you. Um, but saying that, that music shows up all the time. Like I remember... Is it Tiny Dancer that's in the scene in um, when they're in the airplane in Almost Famous and they all think they're going to die? Um, you know, that's the song they sing. Like, as much as it's not super famous, everybody, I think everyone knows that music, whether they realize it or not. Like, it's just everywhere. Is that true or am I wrong? I think, I don't know. I would have thought that until I heard more people, younger people talking about Elton John and saying things like, yeah, I've never, you know, I've heard Elton John songs, but I've, you know, he's never really been a favorite of mine. And I find that people of our generation, Elton John, it, you can't avoid having Elton John be one of your favorites, you know, like it's such good music one and two, it was so ubiquitous in mid seventies life that uh, anyone who could hear at the time would, <laughs> you know, uh, inundated and sort of, sub- I don't know, um, inculcated with the culture of Elton John at the time. And so uh, it's just interesting to hear some people say that they, they knew of Elton John, but you know, it's sort of something that they kind of knew about, but not, that much. Mm-hmm. And I, I find that to, I was like, Oh yeah, I guess that makes sense because after the seventies, he, he had hits for sure, but not like the phenomenon that he was in terms of the media in the mid seventies. So, but, but he also wrote the music for Lion King. He, um, there's something else that he did. The, the stuff that he did around princess Diana, um, the musical that he did with Billy Elliot. Like, I mean, he's still so relevant. It's kind of mind blowing. And what I didn't realize is that he's a piano virtuoso. I thought the way that they dealt with that in the movie was really interesting. And it, um, it's funny, like it just never occurred to me that under all that crazy costuming and that great songs, he's actually playing the crap of the, the piano. And, um, I don't know if you remember when, um, Lady Gaga was brand new. It was like her first year at the Grammys and they did a duet together and it was so uh, big memory. Okay. Well, it was so sweet. And what I realize now from watching the movie is that he was saying to her, like, I, I see you. I see that you and I are the same crazy combination of things. Um, but he also sang with um, Eminem, Eminem. The, the year that everybody was saying, like, Eminem is a homophobic idiot and we should all avoid him. So um, there's a way in which he, you know, continues to um, care about music and show up for music and show up for other artists. It's really humble and fascinating. He yeah, also he was in karaoke. Did you watch that? Which one? Carpool karaoke with. Oh, uh, yes, I did see that episode. Yeah. Uh, the other thing you should mention, if people don't know, is that Taryn Edgerton sang all those songs himself. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah. And if you get the soundtrack, it's fantastic to hear his version. Yeah. I mean, he's definitely a great singer, but he's no Elton John. I'm just going to put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> like I still want to hear the original uh, music, but, but the fact I always respect that, that you can find an actor who can sing very well. And he's a, he's been a singer. Like he was a character in the cartoon sing. Have you seen the cartoon sing? I have not. It's a, it's a pretty good cartoon. And the lead character, the, the main, one of the main characters is played, is voiced and sung by Taron Edgerton. So he, he's a, he's a legit singer and has been for a while. And um, so I just, I don't know. I'm, I'm really looking forward to the rest of his career. Cause I feel like so far he's done fun movies and I'm interested to see what he can do with after this. And I'm guessing he's at least going to be nominated for the Oscar, if not win it. Oh, yeah. And him and Elton are like all around the world right now, continuing to just sing to each other and enjoy each other. And I think that's really sweet. <laughs> They're just like, that yeah. was really fun. Let's keep going. Yeah. He's, yeah. Taryn Edgerton and obviously Elton John, they seem like a, like a fun couple or fun duo, I should say. Um, so that's that. Uh, anything last? Anything more to say about Rocket Man? Uh, I think people should go see it. We'd love to hear your opinion of it. Um, yeah, I really so, think it's going to be up there with like movies that get shown in therapy classes from now here on out. <laughs> because yeah. there's some key scenes in there of like what you try and help your client figure out. They do it beautifully yeah. on the screen, and it's really rare that I see therapy in movies and I think, God, thank you for what you just did there. Yeah. So I also wanted to talk with you about the Hannah Gadsby Nanette thing. Um, I didn't not see because, it. No, you haven't seen it, but I want to talk about the fact that you haven't seen it. Okay. <laughs> so if people don't know what it is, it's, there's a stand-up comic Australian woman from uh, Tasmania actually and she's a lesbian and she has a, she's been doing stand up for a while and she did this one and she's really big in Australia apparently. And she has this special for Netflix, for Netflix called Nanette. And she called it Nanette because it's for no reason. She's just like, I just called it Nanette. It has nothing to do with someone named Nanette. It's just kind of a funny thing. And what is interesting about the stand up special is that it has comedy it has stand up jokes and, that sort of thing. But then she goes into talking about things that are very meaningful and very powerful that aren't funny at all. In fact, at one point she says, as a lesbian comic, I have been doing what a lot of uh, marginalized groups comics do by self-deprecating my, you know, myself, mm. I'll make fun. And I'm not going to do that anymore because that is, I mean, I'm not going to put it as eloquently as she does, but essentially that's giving into the marginalization. It's going along with it. I'm no longer going to make jokes making fun of myself because that's what I was taught to do. I was taught to, in order to fit into a straight society, I had to somehow justify my place by making fun of myself the whole time. And I'm not going to do it. And then she goes on a riff about, Picasso about how she hates Picasso and she, cause she, she has a degree in art history. And so she starts talking about how, uh, you know, she starts talking about art and, and Van Gogh and, 
and his mental illness. And, and then she brings it back to the jokes. And so it's this really interesting meandering thing. And it's getting a lot of attention because a lot of people are saying that she has completely uh, revolutionized standup. And there's a lot of controversy because some people are saying, you know, standup will never be the same again. And other people are saying it's not standup at all. She, you know, she, she's, she's lecturing, you know, which is fine. There's nothing wrong giving a lecture, but it's not standup. You know, there's standup is, is telling jokes it's, and making people laugh. It's not, it's not, um, what she did. So, uh, I don't know. Any thoughts about that? Um, well, I think the reason you wanted to talk to me, you wrote me about it and I said, sometimes I can't consume media that's too close to my own life. Like I just need a break. Um, and so I've heard from everyone I know that they loved it and that she came to Seattle and people love that show as well. Um, you know, I've heard she's just incredibly brutally honest and people are really attracted to that. And I think lesbians have a special place in, you know, female brutal honesty um, because we're already so outside the norm anyways. Uh, so I don't know. I, I don't know. <laughs> Am I answering your question or not? Yeah. Well, I'll also tell you after I tried to convince you to watch it was I talked with another lesbian friend of mine and she said, you know, more than one. How exciting. Oh yeah. Um, and she said that she didn't like it at all. In fact, I think she, I think she kind of hated it. (laughs) She said it wasn't funny. And even the parts that were supposed to be poignant, she didn't think were particularly interesting. And and it's funny because the whole thing in, in the stand-up special is Hannah Gadsby's talking about the fact that she doesn't feel like she's a very good lesbian because lesbians will come up to her after her show and say that she's not um, making enough jokes about lesbians or, I don't know, she's not, she's she's not, not doing lesbian enough. And, she's not lesbian enough. It's a yeah. common thing that we say to each other. So why? What's because the what's the accusation? Don't you also get that and from your Asian friends? You're not Asian enough. You're not white enough. You're not. I mean, I think yeah. it's. A, uh, I it's do. Part of, it's part of that way that we thinking we're supporting each other. We're really tearing each other down. Well, what kinds of things might a lesbian do that's not lesbian enough? Uh, well, the way you dress, or who you date, or your politics. Um, the intensity at which you do your politics, where you live, uh, what car you drive, it should be a Subaru or, you know, your card gets revoked. Um, you know, there can be a lot of intensity. Yeah. For Asian shame, Asian, it's for (laughs) me. Asian on Asian shame. That sounds like a whole like porn section. It's supposed (laughs) to dyke on dyke shame. Different. Sure it is. Sure. Yeah. Um, is that I don't like to eat rice anymore. Mm. Uh, J- Japanese call it gohan. The, the same word in Japanese for meal is the same for cooked rice. Mm, um, that's fascinating. And they have several words for rice. Like there's un, there's a word for uncooked rice. There's a word, you know. Uh, so the uh, the fact that, and, and as a kid my, in my family, we ate so 
since I'm Japanese American, we would have these Japanese American fusion seventies meals that could be cooked for, you know, four kids and a husband by my mom. And, that, and, uh, you know, several days of leftovers cause she didn't want to have to cook. Everything. And one of the, and one of the ways you do that is it's pretty easy to cook up a huge thing of, of cooked rice of sticky rice. And, uh, when she would make uh, spaghetti, for example, the plate would be wall to wall sticky rice, not just on the side. We're talking wall to wall, and on top of that was the spaghetti and meat, and a gigantic, a gigantic uh, uh, glass of not whole milk, but milk directly from a cow, because my mom babysat a daycare in our, and one of the uh, parents who would drop their kids off, couldn't afford to pay for the daycare. And so he would bring uh, whole milk from the cow. He would give us like in those huge five gallon tubs that you'll see yeah. at like Home Depot, full of just right at unpasteurized. And, um, so and the cream. Would, yeah. And uh, so that's, so, so that's the level of, of, you know, rice love that Asians will have. And at a certain point in my life, I just said, rice is only as good as what you put on it. Mm. Uh, it you know, it's, it's, it can, it's awesome with certain things, but by it, just by itself, like, I, 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 I don't know, you know, and it seems like a lot of extra calories <laughs> and cause r- rice is essentially just like bread. It's, it's, right, it's just a starch. Yeah, it's and so when I am around, particularly like my family, and we're doing buffet style, and I don't take a huge even on Thanksgiving, right? It's mm-hmm. it's all the time. It's a huge, you have to have a huge thing of rice, and I I don't partake, and so I get I get Asian on Asian shame. Mm-hmm. Well, that um, should bring us to the next movie of um, Always Be My Maybe. Yes. Uh, directed by Nan uh, Nanachka Khan, she's an Iranian American woman, and uh, a wonderful movie. It's on Netflix called "Always Be My Maybe," and I loved it. I thought it was hilarious. Uh, the first hour or something, I was laughing every other second. Ali Wong is just one of the funniest people. So funny. She has a lot, she has a routine about sex and cars. And so I was curious if they were going to put that in the movie, but there is potentially the best worst sex and car scene you've ever seen. Like what's so funny. It's just so painfully awkward and weird. That might be my favorite scene in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's so good. Uh so Ali Wong, she has a Vietnamese immigrant mom and she has a Chinese American dad. And uh, her it's a it's a romantic comedy and I'm really sad that it didn't get the hype that Crazy Rich Asians got mm-hmm. because I think this is a much better movie. Mm-hmm. I think it's way funnier. I think that the characters are so much more interesting. I think that the message is so much better. Uh, I mean, Constance Wu was amazing in Crazy Rich Asians, but um, the other guy, uh, Golding, whatever his name was, 
I, I found him to be quite boring uh, in Crazy Rich Asians. Uh, Henry Golding. Plus, he's like half Asian, you know. So whereas everyone in this uh, movie is is you know played as a character that's full, and so anyway, um, Randall Park plays. Okay, um, can we talk about Randall Park's songs? Bounce back. I yeah. am expecting these to become classics. They're hysterical. It's like yeah, yeah. They're, so they're, if you have Randall Park, he. He's on uh, Fresh Off the Boat. He's the dad. And he's been in other things like Mad TV. I think he was, I'm not, not sure. But he, in the movie, he's in a hip-hop live band. So you got drums, uh, bass, guitar, uh, or sax or something. Anyway, keyboards. And he, he does these raps. And they're, they're, pretty, they're pretty catchy. The one thing I will say about him is that when he's performing on stage, he has this weird bounce dance that he does when he performs it it's really funny to me when he does it uh but anyway uh i just want to name the 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 all the diverse asian people who played um randall park was great obviously james saito is the dad he's japanese american loved fantastic yeah his lines were perfectly delivered this just proves like you know whenever they're like um because Asian Americans are vastly underrepresented in Hollywood. And what a lot of people will say when they're, because they're dicks is they'll be like, well, there's not a lot of good Asian American actors. or there's not a lot of funny Asian Americans. And I, I just say, just watch always be my, maybe each one of these people should have multiple, you know, uh, leading roles. James Saito, this, he's probably, I don't know. I think he's like 60 years old. He reminds me of all my uncles and okay. all my, grandfathers he's and the greatest thing about this character is that he didn't have an accent and i can't tell you how lying it was to have an old an older jap you know japanese american or asian american guy in a movie in a tv show that it's just like he there's not a hint of an accent guess why because they exist (laughs) he's been here a long ass time my grandparents, who were born in 1910, did not have accents because they were born in Washington State. It's every fucking time there's an Asian person, they have to have an accent. And it, it just drives bonkers, you know? Imagine if every time a black person was on the screen, they had a Jamaican accent. Okay. You would be like, okay. Sure, there are black Jamaicans who live in the States, but there are others. In fact, most of them don't have Jamaican accents. Most of them have other sorts of accents. So it was so refreshing to see uh, the father uh, just, he's a Japanese American guy, you know, and he just, he played a Korean American guy. But anyway, Um, Michelle Buteau, the, uh, assistant. She has a Haitian father and a Jamaican mother. She was hilarious. Um, Vivian Bang, the girlfriend of it's Randall Park. Hysterical. Yeah, so funny. Born in Korea. A hippie Asian. I mean, you don't see that every day. Right, but they are. They exist. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, five percent of Americans are Asians, and five percent of hippies are Asians. Um, <laughs> Daniel Day Kim. 
plays the bad boyfriend. He was the guy on Lost. He's yes. born in Korea. Very uh, Keanu, Keanu was in the movie. It has a hilarious part. Plays himself and yes. plays a hilarious version of himself. It was so funny. Also gets a uh, song. You know? I Boy, what? He also gets a song written about him, which is hysterical. So I think that's oh, right, even better right, when right. you're in the movie and then immortalized in the movie with your own song. Uh, Keanu is a quarter Asian. His grandmother was Chinese and Hawaiian. So he's a fella Hapa brother. Lyrics Born is the bassist in the band. And I think he's Japanese American. He spent some time here in Seattle. No wonder the music is so good. Uh, If you want to track down some really good music, um, Lyrics Born is amazing. Oh, now I understand. It's all coming together uh karen sony she play or he plays the i think the guitarist in the band he's the he was born in india he's from deadpool uh hilarious part you you remember him right oh yeah yeah he's curious if the the baby of the gays is his which is and he gets completely shut down very funny (laughs) yeah his lines were just golden his delivery was just hilarious uh, and then Charlene Yee is in the band. Uh, she's hilarious too. She's she and, was underutilized in this movie, but she's funny in in a lot of other. And her things. movie Paper Heart is that what it's called? She is a great film. Know. She is a great film about that's about love and loss of love. Um, she's just a delight. And she's Filipino, Spanish, Chinese, Mexican, Korean, European, and Native American. Mm-hmm. But she looks. Very Chinese to me, I just have to, or very Filipino to me. So it's interesting that she's all those things. Um, the movie was written by Ali Wong and Randall Park, which I thought was very cute that these, and they've been friends for like 20 something years or something. So I, I thought that was, it's always great when the actors are, you know, a big part of the actual production. So it's very much a labor of love for those two, for sure. Well, and the psychology that they dealt with of, um, you know, that child of immigrant parents who raises herself. I mean, I've, when I worked at Asian Counseling, I met so many people. This was their story. I have a client right now in my practice that we just had to laugh our heads off because this show came out and it's basically her story. Um, you know, how do you know what love is if you've had no attachment model she kind of knows what love is because she's followed the model of the next door neighbors um but i just thought it was really interesting of the psychology of family makeup of with immigrant parents doesn't get dealt with a lot on tv um but they did a great job here yeah and i loved that the parents the neglecting parents of ali wong's character were able to have is a small movement at the end towards more healthy, um, you know, and it was so cute because the big breakthrough uh, is that the parents say that they went to one of her restaurants and they paid full price. They didn't ask for it. <laughs> and uh, to anyone who is familiar with that cultural aspect, they know the meaning, <laughs> the gesture that this was for the parents uh, towards um, Sasha, their daughter. Um, I want to talk about the food. So right yeah. away, we, we see her making spam rice and she uses sprinkles. Uh, 
I I grew up with and still uh, grow up with a lot of spam in my life. Uh, it's some it's it's one of the it's actually distinctively American Asian because if you go to Asia they don't like spam. Uh, Japanese okay. people uh, are like you know mortified about so like what are you eating? You know Japan is high cuisine they don't eat spam. Spam is poor Japanese Americans eating what they could get their hands on and making it into something that's better than what it is, you know, trying to make it into sushi or frying it or making it into um, just various different dishes because that's all that they could afford. And it was given to them during World War II in the camps when they were in prison because it was an army ration. And so uh, the Japanese people learned how to make it into a, a, you know, a Japanese-esque dish. It's the same with hot dogs. You notice that Jenny made that dish that had hot dog bits in mm-hmm. it. That's that's actually something that I loved to eat growing up was teriyaki hot dog <laughs> bits. And it was one of the few things that I could actually afford and make in college. And all my friends would make fun of me all the time for it. Um, and uh, uh, the kimchi stew was looking really good. Uh, when they're at the dim sum place, the chicken feet. Um, mm-hmm. it was, and the shumai and the grunt. And that place, how the waitresses, you know, give him special loving attention that she doesn't yeah. get was also having worked in the ID for years. Very familiar. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. I, I'm I mean, like Ali Wong when I go to dim sum places. You know, they, they look at me and they're like, oh, he looks a little bit Asian, but, you know, he doesn't speak Chinese, doesn't speak Chinese. So, you know, he can go to hell. <laughs> I mean, the thing that, some white people know many white people don't is that Asia is just as racist as America. It could, in fact, it can be worse um, in terms of racism. So there are uh, groups, several groups, cultural groups in Asia, considering that it's like half the, literally half the population of the planet lives in that region uh, that uh, there's a lot of hatred (laughs) between different groups. In fact, Japanese people are almost universally hated because they're the Nazis of Asia. They invaded, raped, and killed, and genocided all sorts of people. In fact, my ancestors, uh, Japanese ancestors, were some of the occupiers of Korea, of South Korea. You know, when they, when Japan invaded Korea, some of my family went there to live and work and occupy. So, uh, and in Manchuria as well, China. So um, they depicted that a little bit, I guess, in the, in the, uh, and Ali Wong in her stand-up specials, which I highly recommend as well. Um, she talks a little bit about that too. Have you seen that, her stand-up specials on Netflix? Yes. And they're really sexual. So I was just curious. Um, that's why I was wondering if the bad sex scene in a car which in her routine is with someone that's homeless um, was going to be in the movie. Uh, so it's interesting to see like what from the routine made it into the movie. Um, yeah. And if you haven't seen the specials, she's pregnant in both of them. Uh, she had, she said two kids and she's largely pregnant in both of them. <laughs> she's a very small woman. And in both of the specials, she is, um, She's about to burst. And so that's another part of the, the humor that she gets into it. Um, 
it's um, funny and I guess stereotypical that both Randall Park and Ali Wong could pass as teenagers, even though Randall Park <laughs> is 45. <laughs> so that was kind of funny. The other thing that they talked about that's worth pointing out is the code switching, so to speak, the, mm-hmm. that uh, Ali Wong is on the phone and she has her, her businessy rich people phone voice. And she also, you know, is accused that she cooks for fancy white people instead of cooking for Asian people or cooking real food from her childhood and how this, this is, this point isn't hammered on a lot, but it's, it is a major theme uh, of conflict that uh, Ali Wong's story arc goes from uh, trying to, you know, impress the world and enter the world of fancy white people. And at the end, she returns kind of to her Asian roots, particularly uh, the mom next door whom she learned how to cook from and, and loved. Um, so I thought that was kind of nice. Mm-hmm. Um, I also like the using of scissors. Koreans are notorious for using <laughs> scissors. Um, and I've often thought about how wonderfully convenient it is to use scissors in cooking. Mm-hmm. You know, somehow we see scissors as like gross, but it's like, they're just two knives bolted together. Well, this is really funny because when I worked at Asian counseling referral service and I ran or I was a major staff person in the kitchen, we cooked, uh, the clients themselves cooked meals, uh, trying to keep my scissors out of the kitchen was damn near impossible. Like I would tape them to things so that people couldn't find them. I mean, it was pretty much impossible to keep my scissors out of the kitchen. So I've seen firsthand. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I wish that we use scissors more often in cooking. Cause you know, when she's cutting the chives, you're like, man, that looks a lot easier with, with okay. scissors. You know, you can, you can hold it right over the dish and just cut it right into the dish. You don't have to, you know, get a cutting board out. You can just blah, blah, blah. Anyway. Um, that's, that's one of the messages I got from the movie. Uh, have you had chicken feet before? Uh, never have. No, been offered. That's what it tastes like. It tastes just like chicken. Yeah. (laughs) With, with knuckles in it. There's knuckles in there. Uh, have you had kimchi before? I have. I can't do spicy. Um, okay. So she's not, she's not super spicy. Right. It can just be vinegary, but yeah, when I worked at Asian Counseling, there was these, um, every year there was a picnic and the Southeast Asians would be making papaya salad like over in one part. And they would actually warn me, like as a white person, you should not get close to what's happening over there because it is so spicy. You won't be able to get it within 10 feet. Um, so I, I've, I've been witness to the spice and the intensity, um, but I just can't do it. I know my system, I'm too white. My system won't let me eat like that. Are you a spice? Can you had- do spice? Um, I am okay with spice, but over the years I've gotten much less acclimated to it. So I I can be, when I was younger, I sort of tried to become good at it, so to speak. And by older age, I'm just like, I don't want to struggle through dinner. I I want, (laughs) um, have you had spam, spam rice and sprinkles before? Oh yes. Yes. Yeah. I live in the South end. I mean, I think yeah. every restaurant, you know, we we both have Sam Chow's and we've got Super 6 down here. It's like the Hawaiian comfort food mecca of Seattle down here. Like, you could have Spam 
every other block at this part of Seattle. Uh, you could have a block of spam every other block. Yeah. Um, I am, that's, I'm jealous because I live in the white ish part of town <laughs> and Rebecca lives in the Asian uh, diverse. Um, Mexican yeah. black Asian part of town, Vietnamese, yeah. Jewish. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So verdict is, I loved it. I recommend it. It's, not only a good romantic comedy as, as they go, but it's actually really funny for the first 45 minutes. I mean, there were so many jokes that I was, I, I think Ali Wong is just her facial expressions and the supporting cast, you know, Randall Park is great. Uh, as we said, uh, Karen Sony is hilarious. There's just so many different, I think maybe it's because Ali Wong and Randall Park are their comedians that, and also actors that they're like, we want to get the funniest people we know. We don't, mm-hmm. we want to funny. We don't want funny lines for people that we want actual funny people. And I think they really nailed it in terms of everyone. I mean, even Keanu is just hilarious. I've, He's so funny. I've never seen him. <laughs> and I actually read an article where a lot of the, some of the things that he did were actually his idea. Like it, <laughs> it was his idea to wear glasses with no, um, with no lenses in him. And it was also his, <laughs> it was also his idea when, you know, they're getting in that fight and he, he's, you know, he like puts his hands out and he's just like, he says something like, well, you know, it's all relative, man. You know, like he, he does some kind of like gesture. That's really kind of like the old Keanu. So it's good to see Keanu kind of letting loose a little bit and getting, having some fun. Um, but anyway, yeah. So let's adjourn there. What do you say, Rebecca? I say we've done well. Any final words for podcast land out there? Well, I was thinking I would start the just take care of yourself thing because I realized I just took care of myself and I ate a balanced lunch before we began podcasting and allowed me to have clear thoughts. So I hope you all do the same today. What was your balanced lunch? Oh, it was so good. It was chicken with capers and almonds. And then I, I love jello. So I had a little bit of cherry jello at the end. I'm an old person. Basically, I eat like an old person. <laughs> jello. I love that, jello. That, I like that detail. <laughs> you know, to, to think about someone that, so you made it. You made the jello. No, I buy pre made jello. My pre-made gel, and you're like, okay, this is my little treat after my chicken and capers. I'm gonna have some Jello. Yeah, you know, Jello is great. Uh, (laughs) Now I'm craving some Jello, just like straight Jello, like no chunks, just like Jello. No, yeah, I like my Jello straight. (laughs) Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Please take care of yourself and have a balanced meal. Why Mm. should they do that? Uh, because you want to have clear thoughts and having a balanced meal is one way to get there. And chicken's feet. Chicken feet. Get those knuckles. Mm-mm.